Good morning, this is The Burner. I am James Butler and it is Tuesday the 31st of March and we are still in lockdown. Now, something a little different for you this morning. I said to you as we set out on the new series of The Burner that you'd be hearing from other voices from across the Navarra media team and I meant it not least because the range of insight and expertise across our team is properly dazzling. So you remember last week we talked about some of the work Craig Gent, who as well as being our head of articles is effectively our chief operations officer, which is a somewhat thankless task, has been doing on logistics and its politics. So I thought I'd hand you over to him for a deeper dip into that this morning. Uh, Thank you, James. Yes, hello, I'm Craig Gent and it's a pleasure to be joining you this morning from Leeds, which is of course situated in the heart of the People's Republic of Yorkshire. It is indeed the capital of Northern England. Sorry, Manchester, I went there. In the news around these parts, uh, Sheffield is now firmly establishing itself as a COVID-19 hotspot. Meanwhile, the Yorkshire Dales National Park Authority has actually had to remind residents that physically blocking visiting city dwellers from car parks and laybys with cars and, and in one case a JCB could sow unhelpful community divisions. And the Harrogate Convention Centre is the latest venue to be designated as a site for a dedicated Nightingale Field Hospital. Now, this uh, forthcoming announcement, which was reported in the Harrogate Advertiser in the Yorkshire Post, would see the town taking pressure off the gigantic Leeds General Infirmary and joining a growing raft of venues set to stem the crisis as it develops. So far, we've had uh, Manchester Central, Glasgow's SEC, the NEC in Birmingham, and of course, London's Excel Centre, whose mattresses are currently being made by a small healthcare manufacturer just outside of Leeds. Maybe a more unlikely Yorkshire manufacturer to have joined the race to tool up the NHS is Burberry, whose giant factory in Castleford is currently being repurposed to make surgical masks. Meanwhile, a gin distillery in um, Harrogate Tipple gin distillery has begun turning its hand to producing hand sanitizer to address the national shortage. Now, uh, it's easy, seductive even, to get swept up in the sense that maybe some variation of blitz spirit will pull us all through the coming storm after all. You know, don't get me wrong. I do think a moment like this will always call for some production lines to be repurposed towards more socially useful ends, and God knows we'll need to see a few more Lucas Plan-style conversions to see us through the climate crisis over the next century, but let's be clear that what we're seeing right now is a scramble, and not some great symphony of market-driven, flexible specialisation. Just yesterday, the BBC reported that one consultant doctor at Bradford Royal Infirmary uh, he replenished supplies of heavy-duty protective masks and eye protection, basically with a massive trip to Screwfix. Meanwhile, a consultant anesthesiologist in the same hospital called up a local distillery to ask if they could help sterilise the masks. It feels quite grim to me, to be honest, that these stories are recounted in outlets like the BBC with such giddiness, when what they really speak to is an absolute failure to properly equip medical staff, in which turn in a national health service is a failure to properly protect us all. Throughout the world, you know, everything we've learned about the pandemic so far uh, tells us with absolute certainty that medical staff need personal protective equipment. So why the fuck don't they have it? Headlines yesterday morning finally zeroed in on this issue, not least since two doctors died last week. And at the weekend, NHS England and Public Health England admitted there had been logistical issues in getting the proper equipment and 
To be honest, it remains somewhat unclear whether medical staff in the UK can ever look forward to the level of protective equipment the World Health Organization has advised that they actually need. Now, I can't say I'm surprised. Uh, yesterday on the burner, James mentioned an incredibly important investigation by Harry Davis for The Guardian, which shows how back in 2017, the Department of Health rejected formal recommendations to stockpile uh, eye protection for all hospital, community, ambulance and social care staff who have uh, contact with pandemic patients in the event of a mass influenza pandemic. Why? Because there was not a significant cost benefit to stockpiling that equipment. Now here we hear again, you know, that word of the moment, stockpiling. Last week I wrote a piece for Navarra Media on why supermarkets' empty shelves have less to do with personal stockpiling uh, and more to do with the organisation of supermarket logistics. You can find that piece on, on the Navarra Media website. It's called uh, When Logistics Run Out of Time. And it really takes aim at the governing principle of much of contemporary commercial logistics, which is known as just-in-time. Now, very briefly, just-in-time logistics sews together time and space in what it deems to be the most cost-efficient way. A month's worth of hand sanitizer sat on a pallet in storage, not cost-efficient. Uh, it's much better to have it show up only when you need it, because Goods in movement, so logic goes, are more cost-efficient than goods sat gathering dust. And of course, this also means that it's better for the preceding link in the chain, perhaps in this case the hand sanitizer manufacturer, to only put goods into the supply chain when they know they can get on with moving it rather than storing it at their own expense. At every turn, the so logic goes, minimize waste as far as possible. You get the idea. Time is money. Space is money. Now, in logistics, for this system to work and keep working, it really depends on the degree of fortune-telling. For supermarkets, this is pretty easy by now. Every customer in a store creates data for the supermarket. That data is modelled week to week, month to month, year to year, and that vast data set informs supermarkets' you know, anticipated purchasing and stock management decisions. I have to say, despite my grievances about supermarket companies' handling of this crisis, they do usually manage it pretty well. Now, of course, hospital patients also produce data. We know that each year flu, flu infections will rise through late autumn and winter and trail off in spring. And thanks to government cuts, the NHS can uh, look forward to a crisis pretty much every winter. But I dare say NHS managers do actually try to structure their expenditure around anticipated seasonal challenges where possible. And nonetheless, allegations of waste in the NHS have become very popular among politicians throughout this century so far to the extent that for large sections of the public, it seems like a no-brainer and just a given that for all of its benefits, the NHS is just bloated, inefficient and uneconomical. And while that might be basically untrue, more importantly, the NHS is not a supermarket. And the pandemic is not merely an unexpected surge in demand. As uh, James Medway wrote for Navarra Media a couple of weeks ago, a health emergency like this threatens the workforce itself, which, let's be clear, in the case of the NHS, essentially means attaching time bombs to the candle at both ends. Amid the various, frankly stupid assertions that doing this thing or that thing would be quote-unquote giving in to the virus, as if it was some wartime belligerent setting out to curtail our way of life, many commentators obviously felt the need to remind people this is not actually a war. But in many senses, of course, it is. There are many parallels we could reach for, you know, the extraordinary curtailment of our freedoms, um, personal sacrifice and disruption, 
perhaps a sense rather bleakly that how the chips fall will actually have as much to do with how prepared we were as with how valiantly we each rose to the challenge. Now, we're all going to play our part in this crisis, whether as people or as workers across various professions, but, you know, undoubtedly our NHS workers are our former soldiers. And there's a reason why the army, for whom logistics was arguably invented, does not function like a supermarket. Being in a state of continual preparedness means maintaining stores. It means precisely not depending on a vast external supply chain at the moment you need to mobilise. It's the reason military logistical hubs are generally run by quartermasters rather than algorithms. And though it's not the most cost-efficient, and yes, it means waste in some narrow, economistic sense of the word, but when it comes to the NHS, what would you rather? When we arrive at the other side of this pandemic, we you know, really must not let our rightful admiration for everyone who's helped us through the worst of the crisis sidetrack us from the hard questions we need to be asking about the NHS's preparedness. Moreover, we should be prepared to come down really harshly on those whose remedies for the social and economic costs of the crisis are going to be to tighten our belts once again, as if you know, this whole pandemic were just some sort of Christmas blowout. Taichi Ono, the Japanese industrial en- engineer and the guy who was the, the pioneer of just-in-time, he had this phrase, you are a cost, first reduced waste. But if the health of the people is the highest law, as I know James is very fond of saying, then I would submit that it should be a cost and even a waste worth paying for. Yes, that is indeed one of my favourite sayings, the health of the people is the highest law. My thanks to Craig for that, and there's so much more in there I hope we'll revisit and dig into a bit more in the coming days and weeks as the impact of the coronavirus lays bare. All of these things that we as a society generally overlook in terms of how we organise our basic needs from healthcare to food. What's that Warren Buffett phrase? It's only when the tide goes out you see who's swimming naked. We're looking pretty pantless as a society in general at the moment. I'm hoping as this goes on, Craig will continue to bring us updates from the People's Republic of Yorkshire and continue to think deeply about how we collectively meet our most basic needs. It turns out all of these frictionless things have a lot of friction behind them. All right. Also this morning, our second part of Rosa Gilbert's AMA from lockdown in Firenze, one of my favourite cities in the world, perhaps predictably. Uh, What about the Lega? And are people there as enthusiastic about their government as depressingly Britain seems to be about Boris Johnson? And what do you do on lockdown to stay sane? So uh, the first question is, what are the league doing in the pandemic? Um, The answer is that they've kind of been a bit all over the place, um, so the league govern the the two regions um, in the north that have been uh, most badly hit, um, Lombardy and Veneto. Um, and so because they're in government there, there's kind of a bit of a game playing between the league and the Conte government, um, basically kind of a power play. Um, but also in terms of shifting blame. So at the beginning of the crisis, Salvini was really adamant that this was the fault of migrants and accusing the government of being negligent by allowing uh, migrant boats to to disembark in Sicily and in the south whilst this um, pandemic was happening. That kind of obviously didn't land very well and then they they basically sort of got into a game of opposing whatever measures the government were putting down. So when the government was um, 
closing, you know, shutting off zones in, in Lombardy. They were saying, no, we need to keep them open because of business, open everything. It's not fair. People want to go to museums. Um, and then now they're saying everything should be closed. All the factories should be closed. They're trying to sort of um, switch to the, to the, I mean, like, it, it's true that the government's now sort of stalling with closing um, uh, factories and they should be closed. But um, they are kind of shifting as a kind of power play against the government um, when a few weeks ago they were saying the, the total opposite. So the, the governor in um, Lombardy, um, who's a league um, governor, his name is Atilio Fontana, and he's been kind of all over the place and hasn't handled the whole thing very well. Um, at first, he was saying it's just a it's just a cold, it's just a bad cold. You know, it's no big deal. Then he was kind of hyping up a lot of the panic by appearing on TV wearing a mask, even though there was no one around him um, on you know on his webcam, um, and kind of being a bit hysterical about it. Um, but also, it's slightly his responsibility that some of these zones in Lombardy weren't uh shut off earlier um it's a government it's a central government decision but he could have he could have pushed for it and called for it um and sort of guided that process and he, he you know that's that's on him as well so the the situation now in Bergamo and Brescia where there's um high numbers of deaths um they weren't locked down until i think until the national lockdown um and the health authorities were advising that they they were locked down you know a week earlier than that maybe even maybe even longer so um it's not just the league who've been kind of jockeying for for power and making business first decisions um the the mayor of milan as well but pisala he kind of led a campaign of milano non si firma so milan won't stop milan won't uh will will carry on i suppose um and that was at the end of February, I think, and encouraging people to go out and get a drink and get food, get an aperitivo in the city centre, which obviously is a terrible idea. And it's the same as what Sadiq Khan actually was doing in London. So there's a big bit of a similarity there. So, yeah, uh, the league, they're still ahead in the polls. They're still in first place. But I think um, they're, they're, you know, their popularity sort of dampened somewhat because of because of their inconsistency in the last couple of weeks. Um, how are people coping here? Is everyone worried about work <clears throat> as they are in the UK? Uh, yes, um, especially because a lot of the uh, Italian economy is based on holiday work, you know, uh, tour- tourist work, um, precarious workers, people who are kind of <clears throat> fake bog- or bogus self-employed working in the <clears throat> uh, tourist tourism industry and restaurants, bars, that kind of thing. Um, obviously, all of that's collapsed and I live in Florence which is the the economy in Florence is like hugely based on on tourism because of the all the um, renaissance art museums galleries um architecture so yeah um the government have introduced a 600 euro like one month payment for self-employed and um, precarious workers and it's it's almost like the kind of uh, citizens' income that they introduced <clears throat> last year. Kind of, but it's, it's a one-off. Um, there's also the mechanism that they've introduced in the UK, the 80% um, uh, pay, pay by, pay by the government, that 
already exists in Italy um, for when companies go under or temporarily unable to provide work during crises. So workers who are furloughed, as they call it in the UK, um, go into what's called Casa Integrazione in Italy. So they're paid 80% of their wage by the state. Um, what do you do to keep, to stop going crazy in the, I don't know if that was a typo, what do you do to stop going crazy in the loco down or if that was a joke or whatever? Um, personally, uh, yeah, I found it's really difficult to concentrate on anything. So I think you have to give yourself a bit of a break when it comes to getting work done and being productive because otherwise you're going to drive yourself insane. Um, I found I'm finding it really, really hard to kind of read books, even to relax, because I'm kind of quite anxious about the situation, especially in the UK. Um, the one thing that's kind of really saved me um, <clears throat> is listening to audiobooks. I don't know if it's because it requires constant concentration and you can't sort of pause or drift off or whatever. You have to be, you have to keep up with it. Um, but also it's kind of more passive, it feels. So I've, I've, I always wanted to read Wolf Hall and then it was always lying on my bookcase uh, untouched. And so I downloaded the month's trial of Audible, which is, it's also got loads of free stuff on at the moment, actually, Audible. Um, but yeah, you can do a month's trial and I downloaded an Italian book to start with. Oh, that was all right. It was a bit boring. And then now I'm on Wolf Hall, got about a quarter of the way through. And I, I really love knitting. So it's it's a way I can read and knit at the same time. Um, cooking, like everyone else who's like not got an imagination, I've just like started baking things, um, making like interesting Italian desserts or whatever. Um but also just like generally keep the house clean and do a bit of exercise and eat properly, like look after yourself because I know it sounds really stupid and basic, but <clears throat> uh, I was going for like long walks when I could, um, uh, when it was still allowed. Now you can't really, so I'm going for like short runs around the block and I found like a stupid cardio video, like high intensity interval training, which is great because it makes you feel like you're still alive and your body still works um and yeah I, everyone I've sent that to is like obsessed with it and doing it every day so it's worth looking up that video um is it true what the press are saying in the UK that it's so bad in Italy because of the multi-generational families because of multi-generational families living together <clears throat> I think this is is a bit of a myth that's kind of been created by the Italian by the uh, British press to to give people a bit of hope about why it's so bad in Italy. I mean, I don't. I I think it's it's. I, don't, I haven't really seen any um, scientific reports about how the disease spreads so quickly in Italy and whether you know um, people kissing on the cheek to greet each other and loads of old people sitting around together and out in public together is a factor. Um, certainly, I read that in Bergamo. Um, something like a third of the population of Bergamo and the kind of surrounding small towns uh, are elderly. So obviously Italy has a much older um, uh, uh, population than, than the UK. But I mean, the South has a much more older population and also family, intergenerational family units living together. And the virus hasn't hit yet, at least, um, so badly in the South. So... I think that's less of a motivating factor 
as massive you know massive urban areas like in in Lombardy um doing work which requires lots of face-to-face and moving around and handling goods and stuff so um yeah I'm not sure if that's uh actually true that kind of myth being being perpetrated in the British press are people actually sticking to the lockdown and how long do you think people will be able to stick by it has there been any public order situations <clears throat> so yeah I mean f- from where I am in Florence people are really taking it very very seriously and were from the beginning even actually before um the the official lockdown came into place um there are cases of people going to the beach and doing stupid stuff um and actually it's being controlled quite a lot I mean I, I noticed in, in Britain it's like Derbyshire police flying drones over the Peak District in Italy there's like a, a b- bigger presence of the police on the streets driving around and also all the different types of police so there's the Carabinieri there's the um, regular police and there's like the financial police who seem to be doing loads of f- finding people and, and giving them fines um, a couple of days ago a guy near me in Florence um, was fined. He was like 150 meters from his house with his four-year-old kid going for a bike ride together, just like you know, by the house, which is apparently allowed, you know, in the in the in the rules. But the financial police, who were meant to be catching, you know, financial criminals, came and fined him 400 euros. So the fines have now gone up from they were 206 euros, and now it's gone up to between 400 and 3,000 euros. Um, I had a look at the statistics and there'd be 90,000 fines for the violation of the rules. And then on top of that, 2,000 fines for lying. So like you have to tell the truth about where you're, where you're going and why you're outside. And if you lie, you get fined. My thanks to Rosa for that. I'll confess I haven't quite mastered interval training yet, though a somewhat brutal daily yoga practice has been reminding me of the disadvantages of working mostly these days in a largely sedentary profession. Ouch. Okay, headlines this morning largely take on the question of policing and police, as police do, exceeding their powers under the emergency regulations. Lord Sumption, a former Supreme Court judge, interesting historian and provocative judicial thinker, was on the airwaves yesterday warning that overreach of police is the beginnings of a police state. And though Sumption and I would doubtless disagree on, well... uh, (laughs) very much. Uh, I find him a tremendously useful person to think with uh, and think against. And here, I think we're not so far apart. It really is concerning when police view it as their job not to enforce the regulations as made in law, but what they interpret to be a minister's wishes, or indeed their own. Elsewhere, the sheer scale of the coronavirus economic shock begins to unfold. Warnings about East Asian contraction come from the World Bank, and here domestically, every sector looks like it's hurting, including garden centres, which warn thousands of plants will die as they remain closed and they miss early spring, their most profitable part of the year. The effects of this crisis really will be visible everywhere. Amy, the outsourcing giant with prison, defence and council contracts, refuses any special sick pay for their staff during the crisis with one of its senior executives in a negotiation with the trade unions, uh, declaring it less serious than normal flu. Scum. And Robbie Gibb, Theresa May's former communications guy and former BBC executive, writes in The Times this morning, warning Labour not to politicise the crisis, in effect telling them to line up behind the government. Robbie, it's already political. Get bent. 
All right, that's it for this morning. Please do stay in touch and let me know what you think we should be covering. Hit me up on james at navaramedia.com. I'll try to keep up with emails. There might be something of delay in my response. Stay safe, stay home, and don't be a prick. That's it. This is The Burner, and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.